This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. is up champs and welcome back to another week of keeping carlson short shifts with your host ben burnett that's me joining me as always my pal and yours lewis ezekiel lewis how are you doing on this very short week of nhl action I am doing great. I would say the only thing more absent than hockey games this week is Jonathan Huberdeau on the score sheet. Eight goals so far for the Panthers, and Huberdeau has yet to factor into one this week. Those folks who are hoping to get great production from him with two games in the early going here are going to have to be sorely disappointed, myself included. Wow, that's kind of wild for those who are up against Huberto this week. I He murdered me maybe two weeks ago now. I think he had a hat trick within one period. And yeah, he just went bonkers on Sunday and throughout the entire week, honestly. So for me, I'm, I'm kind of having residual uh, panic from just hearing the name. So I'm kind of happy he's not going, even though I'm not playing him this week. I remember we were having kind of the unfortunate experience of me being extremely excited about him and you being really bummed out, so that's never fun. No, it isn't. Lewis, we are going to have a bit of a special uh, episode tonight. We are going to have a mailbag episode. The reason for that is with the short week, with the so many teams on by, there just is not that much going on in terms of action. There's not that much in terms of headlines, so we thought we would answer questions on Twitter. You can, of course, follow us and ask us at AVG Time on Ice. And of course, questions from our Keeping Carlson patron-only Facebook page. You can become a patron of Keeping Carlson for only $5 a month. Head to keepingcarlson.com slash patron. Hang out with Lewis, Elon, Brian, and myself every single day of the week on Facebook. Have a great time with us. Lewis, let's get right into tonight's first question on the mailbag docket. And it is... You know, I think very on brand for us to go with a goalie question first, because what are you doing in fantasy hockey if you are not wondering about goaltending? We're going to start with at the Don 450 on Twitter asking when Corpusalo comes back, who gets the most starts for Columbus, Elvis or Corpusalo? Lewis, I'm going to leave this one with you to start. So obviously Elvis Merzlikens has been a total revelation for anyone who's had him the last few games. Three shutouts in his last four starts. Great celebrations on the ice, both at the start of the game and at the end. Uh, you know, this my guess, and really this is nothing but a guess, is that Elvis will continue to see a little over half the starts as Corpusala works his way back into game shape. After that, I imagine Tortorella will ride the hot hand, so fantasy owners could be in a bumpy in for a bumpy ride a la Talbot, Riddick, or Varley Grice. 
It is worth noting that Corpusala, despite his excellent numbers at 5-on-5, is actually slightly underperforming his expected save percentage. That should give some indication about the extent to which the Blue Jackets are protecting their goalies. By contrast, Merce Lickens is slightly ahead of his expected save percentage and has saved four more goals than an average goalie would have at even strength in his limited 19-game sample size. That same pattern holds on the penalty kill, with Merce Lickens above average and Corpusala slightly below, but it's really hard to imagine that Elvis is going to continue to stop 90% of the high-danger shots against on the penalty kill as his sample continues to grow. So that is one area where I would expect to start to see some regression. Uh, so it looks as if Elvis so far has been outperforming Corpusalo, but Corpusalo was on such a hot run, I feel like, they are both in a great position to succeed. Your advantage is that Columbus has protected their goalies so well you can count on a quality start from whoever you play, but it's frightening that you know one bad outing could be the only slip it takes to surrender the net for several games, and then it's going to be back into goalie tandem anxiety time. The numbers so far seem to indicate that Elvis has a better chance of maintaining those great numbers, and maybe Corpusala will be more likely to slip first, but right now it really just looks like a coin flip. I think they are both worth holding, and I would just wait to see, you know, you want to kind of be holding the other goalie when the other one slips up, because it's going to be a few games of success, hopefully, uh, for the other goalie moving forward from that point. Yeah. I mean, anyone who's trying to predict what will happen moving forward based on the numbers that we've seen from either Merzlikens or Corpusalo, sort of just saying like, yep, he's put up this much so far, so he'll be that good moving forward, I think has missed the point of the last two or three seasons of NHL results, which tell us that we cannot predict what goaltenders are going to do into the future. While we have Merz Lickens on this hot streak, I'm not saying that I'm I, I'm predicting him to go out and be terrible over the next 15 games whatsoever. But if he is terrible over the next 15 games, it's not like we look back and say, oh, what happened? He was so good over, like you said, a very limited sample size of 19 games. Having said all of that, obviously, I think Merz Lickens is very talented. He is on a hot run, and I'm I'm happy to ride him as long as the wheels don't fall off. And I think that John Tortorella likely thinks the same thing. They'll ride the hot hand here. There's no reason not to. They don't have an entrenched starter. If anything, they should love the competition for a otherwise vacant spot after Bobrovsky left. So, yeah, I'm with you. This is a this is the sort of thing you're going to have to be following. There is no cut and dry answer. We are going to have to be looking at the box sheet every night and sort of keeping our tabs as this moves forward. Just as an aside, how smart do the Blue Jackets look uh, opening up the crease for this competition, letting Bobrovsky go to Florida, where he's really had some struggles not paying that $10 million price tag? I think this goes to show that, you know, those big goalie contracts moving forward, if GMs are going to be smart, they may become a thing of the past because these up-and-comers seem to be showing up every single year to prove that you don't need to pay huge money for goaltending. Well, I mean, you could say that, but you could also look at it as Bobrovsky said from early on, he did not want to stay in Columbus and did not give them an opportunity to sign that contract. So I'm going to hold off giving the Blue Jackets too much praise as far as choosing to let Bobrovsky go. But 
in general, I think that you're right that there is definitely a lesson here, which is not to overpay your goaltenders. Just like in fantasy hockey, you should not be overdrafting your goaltenders. Wait for the end, grab the Corpusalo or the Merzlikens, who's ever is available, and try and find a tandem that you can ride or a player that you can ride moving forward that, you know, you don't have to forsake the opportunity to grab a point-per-game player otherwise. Let's chat next about Timo Meyer. Patron Alex wants to know, who is Timo Meyer actually? Is he a for sure keeper going forward? He's looking at cupful stats. I'm going to throw this one to you first, Lewis. So right now, Timo Meyer is a guy who seems to be suffering from both the lack of success from players surrounding him and his own reduced role, which is a pretty dangerous combination. Uh, despite the highest IPP and shooting percent, of his career, he's on track to miss last year's point pace by 18. He's pacing for just 51 points. The main culprits appear to be his assist rate. Uh, he had 1.68 assists per 60 last year, and he is down to just 1.04 assists per 60 minutes this year, and the lowest shooting rate of his career, just 8.76 shots per game. Uh, sorry, per 60 minutes compared to 11.33 shots per 60 last year. Uh, Coach Bugner doesn't seem to be smitten with Meyer, and his last six games have seen him clocking below his season average in ice time, and he hasn't managed to crack power play one in spite of Couture's injury. So it seems like Meyer is certainly capable of more that he's shown this season, but I do not see him as a for sure keeper moving forward, as Alex asks. Obviously, a lot depends on the number of keepers and the league settings, but his star, star seems tarnished in a way similar to Alex DeBrinkets, who is someone who came up in the discussion uh, on the mega show on Sunday with Brian and Elon, uh, where he's more of a marginal keeper rather than a sure thing. And I think of those two, I would rather have Alex Dabrinkit for his pedigree uh, compared to Timo Meyer, who, you know, we're not sure he's going to be able to recapture that opportunity that saw him be so successful last year. I mean, the difference there, though, is Alex Dabrinkit is shooting about his career, like half of his career average. So you can see a lot of regression in the positive sense coming from Dabrinkit. I'm not so sure that we see that regression coming for Timo Meyer just based on the deployment that he's seeing. Yeah, I think that's a really good point that you make there. Like, if you regress Alex Dabrinkit's shooting percentage to his career average, he would be on pace for about 71 points this year. Whereas, as you said, Timo Meyer is kind of shooting above what we would expect from him. He's got these numbers that are a little high. And then, you know, the issue with Timo Meyer is clearly deployment. If you look at the ice time splits by quarter, he started out playing 17 and a half minutes. That cut down in quarter two to 17-16. And then in quarter three, he's down a minute and a half to down to 15 and three quarters of time on ice per night. Bugner is clearly not committing to Meyer in a way that's similar to what we saw from Meyer in his sophomore campaign, where Pete DeBoer only played him just under 15 minutes per night, although he is getting more power play time on ice now. In this offense, though, and on this team, I think that Timo Meyer is still a 25-goal, 60-point player. On another team, or if he was getting proper deployment, I, th I think he can be that 75-point guy we saw in the first half of 2018-19. This is kind of just depends on your patience, right? If you have the roster space, if there's no one burning up the waiver wire that you need to add, and he's clearly your worst guy, there are, you know, there are worse drop candidates than Timo Meyer, but 
for me, I, I think I definitely prefer Alex to break it. I think that's clear. Um, but yeah, Timo Meyer, the stock has definitely fallen this year. Hopefully he can get back on track. Yeah, but I think it's a big risk if you're considering keeping here him from this year to next year, unless maybe it's the type of league where uh, you sacrifice a pick based on the player that you picked up. And if it was kind of a later pick, that might work for you. But yeah, I think overall, uh, a pretty risky hold in a keeper league. Yeah, and I mean, my guess would be if you're keeping him at the draft pick that you picked this year, you are not going to want to be keeping him because he was probably a fifth to eighth round draft pick in most leagues, and that is much too high at this point. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Let's move on to a question from Twitter. At Hugh Jasso asks, Armia versus Hornquist, need to drop one. Who has better long-term projections? Ben, as a known Hornquist lover... Uh, I'm interested to hear what you think about the comparison between these two players. Honk if you're Horky. That's right. That's me. Uh, we're looking at two players here who are at very opposite ends of their careers, right? But they're both kind of coincidentally blessed right now by key injuries. In Pittsburgh, the Gensel injury is likely a blessing in disguise for Hornquist owners, who, though it's no guarantee he'll stay, is you know now on the top power play in Pittsburgh. At this point, I think it's clear, you know, his best days are behind him. Hornquist is what he is. He's a 45 to 50 point player with good shot totals and excellent hits. I think Armia is a far more intriguing player just because he's never put up numbers like the season he's having right now. And at 26, it's not really unreasonable to think a breakout could be happening. Uh, things get a little murky for him, though. I mean, the addition of Kovalchuk kind of obscures the right side of the Montreal death chart, especially when Brendan Gallagher comes back from the head injury that he's experiencing right now, assuming he does. And I mean, obviously, wishing all the best to Galley. You would think that one of Kovalchuk, Armia, or Nick Suzuki will need to be bumped down to line three duty when Gallagher comes back. And then on the power play, I mean, they're giving Nick Cousins power play time, so it stands to reason he would get bumped before Yoel Armia, but, like, wilder things have happened than Armia getting bumped off power play two in Montreal, right? So it's not like something we can't even imagine happening. So Armia's projections, by definition, need to have a level of variance to them. That said, I think at even strength, he can the way he's you know, putting up shots the way that he is producing. I think he can be a 40-point guy rest, you know, eight, over an 82-game stretch. And on the power play, if he added eight points, that'd be pretty good, 48 points and, you know, 12 or more power play points, and you're very happy. So I think he can be a 50-ish point player, and I think he has better shot rates than Patrick Hornquist right now and hit rates, though he is obviously on a worse power play unit If you're asking me season-long who I'm betting on, I'll pick Armia. If you're in a league where you can stream and you're staring at one of Patrick Hornquist's, you know, those patented hot streaks where he just goes off for, like, eight points over four games, then obviously I don't have a problem streaming Armia out for Hornquist. But I prefer Armia overall. Okay, yeah, really interesting. I'm with you. I think I like the the floor that sort of his hit-and-shot rates are going to provide. Um and he has been a really intriguing player this year, uh, just putting up you know many more points than I think a lot of people expected. He he was kind of interesting last year, and this year we sort of called him the 2019-20 version of Josh Anderson. I would love to see that continue, certainly. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that would be it. Would be nice to see Josh Anderson become the 2018-19 Josh Anderson, though. Yeah, I wonder if that ship has sailed for this year, but uh, maybe when he returns to the lineup, we can see him find some of his old mojo. 
It'd be nice to see. Uh, let's jump over to a question from Stream Schemes cousin Dave Benton. He wants to know, and he asked this on the Keeping Carlson patron Facebook page, if you were in a league with unlimited ads, a.k.a. if you wanted to, you could maximize your roster most days with starting players, how good would a player have to be above replacement level that you keep him for the full season. So let's say this is the Kakupful 14 team points head to head league. How good is a player that you don't stream him out on a, you know, on a week where he doesn't have a game for four days? Okay. So this was an interesting one and I tried to tackle it uh, with sort of a mathematical approach, which for me is always kind of a dangerous area. Uh, I've got enough math to be able to teach economics, but uh, primarily a history teacher, this is not my area of focus. Um, but I think I'd be willing to turn over quite a bit of my roster. Uh, you know, I would be worried if I had my opponents, you know, staying steady and plucking up my above average but not great players all week. But I think I... So the way I looked at this was, Kupfel has 18-man rosters with 14 teams. So the kind of median player is the 126 player, which in... Uh, Kakupful right now is any player who is scoring 4.15 fantasy points per game. So that is three players. Nico Hishier, Connor Murphy, and Johnny Gaudreau, shockingly enough. Can I jump in just briefly to say, you know, to kind of of transpose this to those who are not in the Kakupful, we would be talking about players who are on about a 55-point pace here. That's kind of what Nico Hishier has been. Um, so players in that 55 to 60 point range are kind of what we're looking at as a replacement level in the cupful. Sure. And then you've got players like Connor Murphy who are getting those points less from scoring and maybe more from those peripherals. It's a quarter point for a hit and a half point for a block, half point for a shot as well. Um, so what I'm thinking is if I can average 2.1 points a game from streaming someone in and get twice as many games in a week, I'm breaking even or even a little bit better. And you have to go down to the 500th ranked players to start averaging that few points per game, and actually even a little further than that. So I would have to imagine that anyone outside of the top 100, about 4.4 points per fantasy points per game, uh, could be streamable in this hypothetical, assuming that you can get twice as many games per week from whoever you're streaming in. Uh, so I was actually kind of surprised. I thought I was going to be more conservative uh, once I sort of mapped this out. But it really seems to me that there are a lot of options out there that are going to offer you at least half the points of anyone who is outside of the top 100 players. I think I would be turning over a big chunk of my roster each night. Is there a reason why in your example you looked for the 126th player by average points? Yeah, just because that was the midpoint of, you know, that was sort of my baseline that I wanted to select because that is the uh, center of the total players uh, claimed in Kakupful. So with the with the size of the rosters and with the number of teams, uh, that's your sort of your your midpoint player. Okay, so I suppose yes. This what would be interesting about this, Lewis? I think is that. Players who offer great peripherals would be getting streamed in and out constantly, right? This would be somewhere where you're seeing defensemen, like depth defensemen, becoming incredibly valuable in fantasy. 
Yeah, anyone who can reliably give you a floor of points uh, are going to be really exciting for you. I think what would be most infuriating about this league is the amount of time you would have to spend setting up your waiver claims each day because you would need backup plans upon backup plans upon backup plans, and it would be probably shuffling through the entire waiver priority order multiple times each day as some of these claims are being made. So I think that would be kind of fascinating, but I think unless you had a ton of time on your hands, uh, it could become very frustrating very quickly. Yeah, not only would you have like 14 players bidding on the same player, at 14 owners, in fact, bidding on the same player at the same time, but you probably would grind trading to a halt because the relative value of these players becomes so obscured by the fact that the waiver wire is essentially like your bench, right? Like everyone is drafting from the same spot. And then I think it would just become so infuriating that you would be streaming out players so often that wind up becoming a little bit better than you expected. They become fantasy like hold relevant that it would be just too annoying to play in a league that I would otherwise describe as Cousin Dave's wet dream league. I think the only way you could survive such a league would be drastically reducing the number of players so that you are picking from, you know, pretty upper echelon players. Like maybe you have one or two players in each position. Uh, That way you don't have to set so many claims and the, you know, degree of competition I think is a little bit higher. But of course that sort of undoes the wildness of, of the hypothetical that Dave sets up here. So I think that that defeats its own purpose. Right. And it's funny that you say the one way that you could kind of fix this, because as soon as you said that in my mind, I was like, I feel like the way you'd fix this is by limiting the amount of moves that you can make. And then I realized <laughs> that that just defeats the purpose. So yeah, Cousin Dave, a fun little thought exercise, but I am good with, you know, even if you just want to have a high uh, ad drop rate, I think that that's a lot better. I'm in a league with six and I, I stream pretty regularly. And I think that that's the right way to go. All right. Uh, Let's move forward, Lewis. Why don't you pick the next question? All right. Let's jump into another question involving our guy, Yoel Armia. At Almost Dr. Jones asks, would you keep Radulov over Armia or Kovalchuk? Radulov has been a real stinker and is eating up space, but he's got that solid history behind him. This is a full bangers league featuring blocks. Uh, And while it is a keeper league, I don't think these players are factoring in to almost Dr. Jones's keeper decisions. Yeah. And so I decided to deep dive Alexander Radulov for this one. And what's funny about this is that a few months back for Dauber Hockey in my Geek of the Week column, I looked at several player on the Stars who had been slumping because everyone on the Stars was slumping to start the year. And what I didn't do is I didn't look into the top two players. I didn't look into Sagan and I didn't look into Radulov because my assumption was just, you're not dropping these guys. These are the studs. You know, Jamie Bennett already started to fall off last year. So, you know, that's kind of where I started. I went down to Pavelski. I went into Rupe Hints. I went into Heiskanen and Klingberg. But I, you know, when I went back and looked at that piece uh, while I was preparing for the show, I realized I hadn't talked about Radulov. And I'm kind of glad I didn't because I definitely would have overshot what I think his projection will be now. Um, you know, last year he's on a pace for 54 or for 84 points rather. This year he has dropped all the way to a 51 point pace more than halfway through the year. 
Uh, the big factor when it comes to evaluating either of the star's big three players is they're all dealing with huge drops in ice time. Uh, Jamie Benn has lost about a minute and a half per night. Sagan has lost a minute and 45 seconds. But Radulov has lost nearly three minutes of ice time per game, dropping from almost 20 minutes last year to just over 17 minutes per game this year. Part of that is the team seems to be trying to even out the power play units, and part of that seems to be that they're trying to even out their deployment at even strength. So it's it's both things. It's not just that he's losing out on the power play. It's not just that he's dropping in his five-on-five deployment. It's that kind of the whole top of the team has been kind of like the Predators were a few years ago, where the top line and the fourth line had the lowest uh, uh, disparity in time on ice. That's what we're seeing with the Stars this year. So when you see a a decrease in power play deployment like Radulov has seen, that's going to eat into anyone's totals. If he played the minutes that he's pacing for this year, last year, and he scored at the same per minute rate, he'd have scored at a 73-point pace as opposed to 84. So just off the top, losing those three minutes per game costs him 11 points from what we would expect this season. As far as regression goes, he does have a markedly low on-ice shooting percentage at even strength, and we would expect that to trend upwards. But he's also working on a career-low shot rate, which you do not like to see, and it's going to prevent him from hitting his ceiling. He's just not throwing enough pucks on net at even strength. So while I do think that he's due for a market correction in that pace, I am confident at this point in saying that he is not going to approach a point per game, and I don't think he's going to approach 70 points uh, 70 point pace rest of season. When I look at the underlying rates moving forward, I think that he's closer to a 60 point player. You'd like to see those minutes go up before you think he can hit 70 again. So, you know, to recall the question, we were talking about Radulov, Armia, and Kovalchuk and who you'd cut first. I think between the three, as I mentioned earlier, I see Armia as a bit of a 45 to 50 point guy. I think that he's the first cut, but the second drop for me would be tough, I'll be honest, because you know, you have a suddenly resurgent Kovalchuk who looks like he could be a 60 to 65 point player, but that kind of depends on what happens in Montreal when Brendan Gallagher comes back. And I think that that's kind of the biggest question that we're looking at, or one of rather the biggest questions in fantasy hockey as we head into the All-Star break. What happens with the Montreal Canadiens and Brendan Gallagher? Is he back soon? Or are these headaches or is this, you know, head injury? Is it going to be like we've seen with Nolan Patrick where it's left him out of off the ice for a super long time. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how this battle between former KHL stars works itself out. I think Kovalchuk is really interesting right, right now, but as you say, there's a lot of questions up in the air here. The other thing, too, is I think Brian and Elon mentioned this on Sunday's show, is that what happens if the Canadians find themselves on the outside looking in in the playoff race and decide that flipping Kovalchuk for a pick is the best way to get a return on their investment. Uh, There's no real telling where Kovalchuk ends up or if he'll be even close to this level of deployment. That was an outstanding deep dive. I love the comparison to the Predators in Days of Yore with that uh, extremely equitable deployment which maybe was beneficial for the team in general but is so frustrating for fantasy teams uh you want to you know have those top lines that are chewing up tons of minutes you know last year's 23 minute alex barkov outings uh not kind of the 16 17 minutes for just about everyone up and down the lineup we have one last question from the commander-in-chief himself, Brian Com. He wants to know, and this one, this was a controversial question 
Lewis, because in the comment to this question, Elon said he will skip this part of our show. So if you have any further slander of Elon to drop, now is the time to do it. Brian's question, are you pro or against auction drafting? Thoughts? All right. So I am in favor. I like auction drafting. That being said, I have been far more successful at snake drafting. So I am maybe undermining my own... uh, I'm voting against my own interests here, uh, like Americans love to do. Um, I, I, from my hockey purist side, says auction is the superior format. Uh, it gives everybody equal opportunity to any player. There's no random decision about who gets to go first, and therefore pick the top players. And then you're hoping that if you're down at the turn, you can pick a couple pretty good players. You know, if you you can have any player you want as long as you're willing to spend on it. I have had issues spending too much on goalies who suck, which is part of the reason I was booted from Tier 1 Sweden last year. I'm hoping to make my way back in, uh, but I'm a little worried about who my competitors might be if we end up with two or three or four of the Keeping Carlson team up in Tier 1. It seems quite dangerous. Obviously, advantages for snake drafting is that it's much faster. Uh, And again, I've had a lot of success this year. I was able to get Pasternak at 8th overall, Eichel in the 2nd, Hedman in the 3rd, Uberdo in the 4th. I doubt I would have been able or willing to afford all of those guys at an auction. So certainly some benefits if uh, you you get some hits on your snake draft. But I really love the idea of each GM getting to value each player exactly where they want to. And then, you know, sort of the psychology of seeing these things unfold. It makes for great commentary as it takes place. Um, I really love listening to the, you know, they're really long, but I like listening to the um, live draft commentary. Here's the number one reason why auction drafts are bad. They take so much time. Like, I literally, I wanted to do an auction draft this year in Tier 2, and there was discussion of that being available in Tier 2 of the Cuckupful. Sometimes you got you can't just be on your computer for six hours drafting a fantasy hockey team, and, you know, I would hate to have to miss another draft for that reason. So that's my main issue with the auction draft. Overall, the snake draft, I do have a lot of fun doing it. If you're with 14 very strong GMs, I think either method of drafting is fine. I don't think that there's, you know, I've heard people say that the snake or the snake draft is for clown leagues. And I think that that's okay. But I also think it's fun to draft a snake draft and some of the strategy that goes into targeting where you're going to look at certain players. I think that that's a lot more fun than not being able to prepare for an auction draft and what sort of valuation each of these players is going to receive. You know, you go into a snake or an auction draft and you're going to be like, well, I've got $30 for goalies, but then every single goalie is going for $20 and you end up with, you know, lose blowing your budget that like, I prefer to have a little bit more of a plan going in just because I think that that is more fun, but I totally understand that people feel the opposite way. And I don't, begrudge them for feeling that way 
Yeah, and while I think that six hours is an exaggeration, I think most of the cuckupful tier one drafts take about three. One of the big things that you mentioned is if you have, uh, you really cannot afford to have a GM who misses an auction draft. It really ruins it for everybody because uh, not only is the team that they draft going to end up being pretty terrible, um, but it kind of damages the valuation uh, across the board. You know, some people ending up with more money to spend and others having to, you know, it, it just never works out the way you kind of want it to. Auto drafting in a snake still oftentimes ends up with kind of a crappy team, uh, but at least your team is usually kind of salvageable. I've seen some folks who have missed auction drafts, and it's just, you know, those are the people who kind of stop updating their lineups about this time of year. If not earlier. Yeah. Well, Lewis, it's been fun opening up the mailbag, but it's time to close that boy back up. For myself, Ben Burnett, I'm signing out of here. Lewis, why don't you take us on home? All right, so we want to give our acknowledgments to Natural Stat Trick and Corsica Hockey for helping us with our research for today's episode. Please give us a follow at AVG Time on Ice on Twitter at Keeping Carlson. Uh, check out at Game Day Lines uh, to see the updated lines from all of the beat writers. Uh, and until we see you later this week, play smart and keep your shifts short. <laughs>